Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda, and thank you for joining us again on another AMDA on the go. Very excited today as we're going to be talking about recommendations for medical and mental health care and assisted living. And I am joined by three amazing um, writers and contributors and um, speakers. And I'm going to turn it over to Cheryl Zimmerman to introduce herself, and then we'll just do a, a bit of a round robin. Thank you, Diane. Um, I am Cheryl Zimmerman. I am a distinguished professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I co-direct the program on aging disability and long-term care and have the uh, great pleasure of being co-editor-in-chief of JAMDA, the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association, or better stated, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Thank you, Cheryl. Lindsay? Hi, glad to be here. Lindsay Schwartz. I am the founder and principal of Workforce and Quality Innovations, and I am also the SEAL, the Center for Excellence in Assisted Living, which AMDA is a part of, and um, so is Doug Pace, and Cheryl's on our advisory council, which is the Center for Excellence in Assisted Living um, chair. Thank you. And Doug? Well, hi, everyone. I'm Doug Pace, Senior Director for Long-Term and Community-Based Care with the Alzheimer's Association out of our home office out of Chicago. I work out of our public policy office in D.C. And as Lindsay mentioned, I'm also honored to be a part of SEAL, the Center for Excellence and Assisted Living, and I serve as the vice chair of the board. It is, it is really wonderful to be with all of you today. And we are, for anyone who's listening, talking about the recommendations for medical and mental health care and assisted living based on an expert Delphi consensus panel. Um, this was published in um, JAMA Network, the open network. And I want to start with you, Cheryl. I want to know why did you conduct this project and how was it done? Well, we conducted this project because I expect most listeners are very aware of the concern that has been happening about the acuity level of assisted living residents having increased. Years ago, many, many years ago when assisted living first began, people talked about um, this being kind of a hospitality social model of care, that people who needed supportive care but didn't need, didn't need health services would go to assisted living and be able to get supportive care. Things have changed a lot over the years. Um, as acuity, it, it, uh, people have been discharged from hospitals um, more quickly than they used to be. The acuity level in nursing homes has gone up. People who used to be in nursing homes have now moved into assisted living. And a lot of the people living in assisted living have got a lot of the same uh, chronic care needs, levels of comorbidity, and acute care needs that nursing home residents have. Um, but... There are not national regulations and um, largely not state regulations or requirements 
for medical and mental health care, although the need has certainly been increasing. Um, there's been now more than half of assisted living communities do have a nurse, an RN or an LPN. Um, years ago when they began, they didn't need to. There's been a lot of discussion, including amongst AMDA members, about the need and benefit, potential benefit of medical directors in assisted living. So there's been a lot of dialogue. Um, and then one last change is, you know, there's long-term care specialty um, medical providers and mental health providers who go on site to assisted living. So the field has been evolving, recognizing the need, but there has been no concise, organized set of recommendations to help really inform what that medical and mental health care should be in terms of the overall structures and the processes of how it's developed. So um, that's why we did this project. Yeah, and I, I am truly impressed and grateful. And I, I having been in, in multiple ALs over my career, it is very different. Each one of them are very different. I'm curious um, to Doug and Lizzie on what was the experience like of serving on the panel? I can go first. Um, it was a really wonderful experience. And I'll just say this to start in case anyone listening to this is asked to be part of research. It didn't take a lot of time. Um, and also, I, I have to say thought provoking because of all the questions that were asked around things like feasibility. So my part of my role was thinking about it from an assisted living since I work so closely with providers and thinking through, you know, how do these impact quality of life, quality of care, and also just thinking from the wide array of assisted living providers, whether they were independent owners or part of a multi-chain or they were small or large because assisted living, as Cheryl said, differs so much Um by state, by within the state, um, owners, just kind of trying to make sure that diverse spectrum was really included when I was answering um, the questions. And it was nice to see the different group of panelists. Um, it, it really is a diverse group of panelists that responded. And I think really great with the deep expertise coming from everybody. Yeah, this is Doug, and I would just build off of that as well. I, I was really uh, thrilled and honored to be a part of this process. And, you know, I had never participated in a Delphi process like this before, and I just thought it was a wonderful and fascinating way to sort of take people's differing opinions and see how we can reach consensus. And, you know, Cheryl and Lindsay both know I'm, I'm all about a process. And, you know, as someone who worked on the assisted living work group many years ago, you know, one of the things we realized when we started that work was we had to have a process to help guide our work. And, you know, as Lindsay said that, you know, that took us 18 months to do. This was a much quicker process, although um, it was a time dedication for each one of us to do it on our own. It took us a long time to go through all of these questions. And, and for me, it really was a, a, an opportunity to sort of sit and think about these issues really in, the, in a new and different way and to look about the importance of quality and, and, and how feasible they were. And I thought it was a, a wonderful process to be a part of. And I think the results that we saw to come out of it are, are really uh, wonderful. And maybe this is Cheryl again. Maybe I'll, I'll pick up on that, um, Doug and Lindsay, because uh, talking about the amount of effort that went into this, it'd probably be helpful for listeners to hear what it was that ultimately you and um, 17 other people, 19 panelists in, in total, ended up doing. Um, th this did take more than a couple of months that um, 
Doug, you and Lindsay were involved in this, because we had spent a great, great deal of time over the, the past years in the work we've done um, looking at and compiling what are different potential components that could be important to medical and mental health care uh, provision and outcomes in assisted living. And by looking at literature, state regulations, different guidelines, input of advisors, even input from the panelists, we came up with 183 different potential components of medical and mental health care that could be recommended. And it was those 183 items that Doug and Lindsay and the 17 other panelists who represent a very broad diversity of organizations um, there are geriatricians, there were nurses, there were provider organizations, um, advocacy groups, consumer representatives, um, and, and I'm probably not fairly even going into some of the other um, constituencies that were recognized. Um, but what, what they did is they looked at all 183 of these items. I can give you a handful of examples. And each person rated independently which um, I, I really appreciate the fact that Delphi is, I, I think, a rather fascinating um, and rigorous way to arrive at consensus because the Delphi does, does not allow one person to influence another person. All these ratings are done independently based upon a person's own perception, own background, own expertise. So any rate, there were 183 items, and for every one of those 183 items, we asked the panelists, to rate um, the extent to which they thought they were important to uh, medical and mental health care provision in assisted living. Um, and uh, there was a one to nine scale, which is the standard way to do it. And then we also asked the extent to which they felt they were feasible, because this being such a diverse field, you know, you've seen one assisted living community, you've seen one assisted living community. We also ask them to rate the extent to which they thought that if this was something that was important, was it feasible in no assisted living communities, some assisted living communities, or most assisted living communities. And that's, that's what this really very deep thought process each panelist had to go through was about. We ended up having three rounds. The first round, they looked at all 183. By the time we got to the second round, it was clear that some, there was clear consensus around some areas um, that they were important, some consensus that they weren't important, and then some kind of medium areas that Either we felt we needed to be more clear on what we were asking or else we needed to better understand what it was that uh, the panelists were telling us, in, meaning that, you know, maybe it's important, maybe it's not important. So it basically took three rounds, which is quite typical for um, Adelphi. And then at the end of the day, we came up with what ended up being a total of different of 43 different recommendations for medical and mental health care in assisted living that were grouped into five different domains. So, I mean, the process, that's, that's intense and amazing. Um, can you share with us what the results of those 43 um, recommendations, what, what we really narrowed it all down to? Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll um, maybe let's see. So I can speak to each of the the five areas broadly, I guess. Um, give a couple of examples within each one, and um, Lindsay and Doug can can join in, or perhaps when I'm done, we could talk about how we felt at the end. This all really came together and really described what assisted living is. Um, 
the first set of domain, the first domain, there were five domains into which the um, the recommendations can kind of naturally grouped. One of the domains had to do with staff and staff training. So one and, and the one recommendation that was the most highly endorsed. Um, it, again, they were rated importance from a one to a nine. The average rating of this item, which was training for any staff on person-centered care, was scored 8.9. 100 percent of the people, all 19 panelists, felt that it was important. And um, also, with feasibility, a score of three, meaning they thought it was feasible for all communities, it had a feasibility score of 2.9. Um, and maybe, Doug, I will call on you right now, if you don't mind, because I know you you commented how um, uh, impressed you were that person-centered care was so highly endorsed by so many people. Yeah, thank you, Cheryl. And it was really encouraging to see. And I think, to your point, that's one of the things that's great about the Delphi process, because it really allowed us to have the time to look at this question and to put it through the filters that the Delphi process went through. And, you know, there's many of us that were part of this process that have been talking about the importance of person-centered care for a long time. And it's been one of the core components that we've worked on with Cheryl through the Center for Access and Assisted Living and also through my role at the Alzheimer's Association. You know, we released our dementia care practice recommendations in 2018, and we started with the very first recommendation of know the person. Um, and we now know that we have much more evidence around that moving us away from more of a staff-directed model of care to this person-focused directed care is is really the the best way for people, uh, all people, but especially for those people living with Alzheimer's and all dementias, which make up a good population of people living in assisted living, for them to have that delivery care. So, Cheryl, to your point, to have 100% agreement around that was just so encouraging and I, I think really uh, and one of the most important findings for this. You know, I would just say a, a, another one around the staff and training was talking about the direct care worker to resident ratio. You know, that one also got 100% agreement. And, you know, talking about that, we know that, um, you know, the, the staffing should be acuity driven and related to the care needs of the person and, of course, evidence-based. So, to me, that was another one that was really um, exciting to see that it got 100% agreement. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up because it's, yeah, in the staff and staff training domain, there were quite a few um, items that were very clear. So, you know, 11 of the 43 items of the recommendations for medical and mental health care were in this domain. I mean, so, for example, having an RN on site, that's, that's very clear. Having an LPN on site, both of those were highly recommended by more than three quarters of the panelists, and they all scored um, close to eight. And anything above a seven, between seven, eight, and nine is considered important. Um, but things like the staffing ratio, and I know, I know Lindsay's going to have some points about this, we we did specifically try to ask the panelists, well, is there a certain ratio? What should the direct care worker to staffing ratio be? Or in another couple of areas where we asked about numbers is what percent of staff who are um, 
who are contract versus non-contract staff, you know, who aren't, aren't employed by the, the organization itself. What should that cut point be? Um, how about full-time versus part-time? And the panelists, I mean, here's where I thought that they were really very, very pragmatic, very reasonable, saying we need to have some caution if we're going to start recommending an actual ratio for staff and staff training, or especially staffing. Um, or how many shouldn't be contract staff, or how many should be full-time. And, Lindsay, I know because you're all about workforce, um, I bet you've got some, some ways you can flesh out why it's hard putting numbers around those. Yeah, thanks, Cheryl. You know, as you mentioned, we don't, and uh, Doug, we don't have a ratio set up. And as said before, it's so important to do a staffing ratio based on acuity. And what's difficult is but also part of the beauty of assisted living, they're so varied between the states because they're state regulated. Um, like I mentioned before, if you're an independent, um, independently owned versus versus a chain. Um, and so it's just important that we have evidence to support some kind of ratio or something that can help providers determine the appropriate ratio that's based on the acuity of the residents that they have. And I'll also just say this as I was rereading the article too, and I was going to talk about this later, but since we're talking staffing, you know, it's, I think probably most people listening to this know, but long-term care was facing a serious shortage of workforce, all types of workforce, um, direct care, medical staff before the pandemic. And it's really become a crisis. So that's also somewhat of a challenge when thinking through the ratio and also thinking of these are great recommendations, but, you know, we, we now, we have to figure out where staff is or can come from. Yeah, and I'm glad yeah. you brought that up, Lindsay, because that was, something that was concerning as I read through it. Doug, I, I believe you had a, uh, a point to make. Yeah, I was just going to add on, you know, to me, another one that was so important and got 96.5% agreement was around staff training for dementia and mental illness, because, you know, again, that's I think that's was one of the impetus for starting this whole project is because, as Cheryl mentioned, you know, we know the acuity level of people that are moving into assisted living is rising. We know the number of people that are coming there because um, maybe they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or other dementias and they may be experiencing some dementia related behavior or uh, some some other issues around that. Um, so the training to prepare the staff to know how to best care for those people is so, so important. And I think that resonated really clear through this process um, that it starts with person-centered care, but then in addition to that, you've really got to have the staff to understand how to um, best use non-pharmacological approaches in, in caring for persons uh, with dementia and, and being able to utilize those practices and, and to uh, being able to put those in effect is really important. Yeah, and, and the recommendations, um, the, the paper is, I, I really do encourage people to look at the paper because just looking at these recommendations, they're so straightforward. Um, like another recommendation within this, this domain, um, uh, training on side effects for drugs for staff who administer medications. That, that seems very logical but to, to, that, that that would be a recommendation, but that hasn't been set forth until now. Um, or training staff on infection prevention and control. Obviously, that's really quite relevant, but it hasn't been broadly set forth until now. So I think 
um, the, the thinking about the breadth of what the care needs are within this setting. There's 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 the dementia needs, there's the mental health needs, and certainly the medical needs all wrapped up where we started with this, which is in the person-centered focus, which um, I'm sure we will be talking before we're done about that, reflecting back on what are some of the core values of assisted living, one, of course, being the person-centeredness. And Cheryl, I might add as well, to me, another one that was really important under staffing and training was training for any staff on end-of-life care and advanced care planning. You know, I think a lot of times that's something that we just think automatically happens. And I think raising that and making sure that um, that those conversations are had upon admission is, is really important. And I think that was one that got um, high consensus as well. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Join AMDA in Tampa, Florida, March 9th through the 12th at PALTC 23 AMDA's Annual Conference. Register and book your room within AMDA's Room Block by November 30th, and you'll receive the PALTC 23 Conference Recording Package for free. Visit PALTC.org for more details. And now, back to our podcast. Yeah, and I'm reading through this study, I... um you know, all of those stood out to me. And something else that stood out to me was around um, under the domain of policies and practices, uh, policy and procedure regarding aggressive behavior or other behaviors. And then I believe the one on notification for emergency um, room visits. I was just like, that makes so much sense. And I, I, I was just really amazed that, you know, we were able to, to, to come up with that because that has been one of those things that frustrate, has frustrated me the most um, when managing residents who are in the assisted living, not knowing that they went to the ER or not knowing, um, realizing that there was all of these policies did not exist. So I was really impressed as I was reading through this. Um, and I think you guys have been sharing what you would hope it what what you're fascinated but can you just maybe unpack that a little bit more and tell me what do you want to see come from um this project what would you hope for um gosh diana i i hope what i would hope for is something similar to what you just said and did is that um a lot of these, these elements, I believe face validity you know the informing responsible party if an emergency department visit occurs or um, I think on that same list, these are under the policies and practices. Um, informing a responsible party if a medication has changed or if there's a change in status. Um, it, these are such logical things, but what hasn't happened is that people haven't really thought about how they've not yet been formally incorporated. Certainly, the 42 recommendations haven't been brought together until now, so they haven't been formally incorporated into any standard operating procedures. And I do want to make sure to say, not only is face validity, but we, we asked about feasibility. All of these that, that made the, the top recommendations, I think also like a handful, were considered to be quite feasible for virtually all assisted living communities. And we had data. We had data on 26 of the 43 from this multi-state study uh, that we've been doing. And for those 26 practices, three-quarters of them, 26 of the 43 for which we had data, three-quarters of them were already being done. So I think, Diane, all we, needed to do, all we need to do is to help providers, help organizations, advocacy groups, consumers, everyone who's got any, anything to do with this field to say, hey, 
here's a list. Let's just think about, are we doing this? Because you know what? We probably can. So if we're not, let's do it. And we're going to be hosting a series of roundtables to try to get traction in, in that arena. But Doug and Lindsay, you guys are the, the kind of the boots on the ground folks. So maybe I'll let you elaborate on that. Well, you know, I might just jump in really quickly and say, I, I think there's so many opportunities for people to use this report and make it useful. You know, we, as you said, Cheryl, assisted living is state regulated. And we know um, every year state legislatures uh, are looking at their state regulations and they're either making minor tweaks to them or they're doing major revisions. And so I think this report really gives um, some importance in two different ways. Number one, if you look at the people who participate in this, this is a great cross-section of people from all walks of life in assisted living. And number two, we know that, uh, as you said earlier, the, the people that are moving into assisted living need more services. So I think this can be a good guide for policymakers as they're looking to see what is the best regulation that we can have in our state to make sure that um, the quality of life and quality of care is the most that it can be. I think it's a great tool for the providers to use, for them to crosswalk against their own operations and say, you know, for instance, one of the ones under um, staffing and training, or excuse me, under resident assessment and care planning that to me that was really important was they conduct a formal cognitive assessment as part of the resident assessment and they use a formal assessment tool for cognition. Again, you know, if they're not doing that and they see that there's 84.2% agreement on both of these items, then maybe that's an opportunity for them to say, well, let's look at our operations and see how we can improve that. And then I think for consumers, it gives them a better way to understand the variety of assisted living and what this group of experts really see as important for them to have a better understanding too, if they need those services. I agree with everything that Doug and Cheryl has um, have said, and I really hope to, you know, we heard throughout the pandemic, which I thought was very interesting um, from colleagues, whether in research, uh, the administration kept saying uh, to a lot of us that worked in assisted living and were helping out with pandemic response was, wow, assisted livings really provide a lot more health care than we thought. And I, I, you know, so this is incredible timing for this research and the publication um, as we continue through the pandemic, but also kind of where we're at and where we're going with assisted living. You know, Cheryl mentioned for so long, many providers have and others have thought of assisted living that there's a social and medical model. And I I mean, I can say I know for SEAL because we just had this discussion more recently, but I'm really hopeful that we acknowledge that that's an antiquated dichotomy, and it's really about providing holistic health care and addressing an individual's physical and mental and emotional needs to really provide that person-centered care, which is why assisted living started in the first place. And as Doug mentioned, too, around policymakers, I had mentioned that staffing was such an issue. And I think this is a really good opportunity for policymakers to think, how can we get more staff in long-term care, specifically assisted living? You know, more clinical workers, more direct care workers, um, programs that can help get them, whether it's um, financial aid or <clears throat> loan forgiveness programs, and also for providers to think about how they're operating to keep staff. Because if we don't have staff, it makes it really hard to achieve these recommendations that really, I mean, I think Cheryl mentioned, they're not that hard. And by 
doing that um, and providing that person-centered care is so incredibly important. But I also think from a standpoint of how can we get these implemented, um, and Cheryl and Doug know this, I love this, thinking about like what kind of resources, if we're suggesting different assessments, can we look at assessments that are applicable to AL? And, and Cheryl's done a study on this for SEAL, looking at different tools for measures and tools for assisted living. And those kind of tools are easy checklists, like if you're not doing this um, assessment, here's how you can implement it, I, I think are really needed to be so these recommendations can be implemented in a consistent way that helps providers be successful implementing the recommendations and addresses. I know Cheryl um, and the authors have included that there needs to be some evidence behind some of these. And so hopefully, too, there's future funding. Cheryl, I'm, I'm already giving you new research <laughs> projects looking at, you know, the outcomes when we implement these important recommendations. I'm sure Cheryl yeah, appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Diane, please. I no, I, I was just going to say, I'm sure you're, you're appreciate. I, I'm just, um, I just think that there's so much that we can learn about person um, centered care from the ALs. I, I really would like us to go back to what you mentioned about the roundtables and just explain to everyone who's listening what is, what will what can we expect um, to see with these roundtables? Um, well, right now it's it's still formative. We are going to have a launch that we're going to very very broadly um, uh, market. So we hope that, that people from all different organizations will come to the to the launch where we will talk through the recommendations, have a conversation, perhaps similar to what we've just had right here. Talk about where we think um, where we think change can can be had. It can be informing regulations. It can be informing practices. We may then break off into some um, separate um, roundtable discussion groups and action groups. Perhaps some people working on the policy side. Some people working on the actual um, provider side. Some working on the you know the the um, geriatricians. Um, certainly, there's a lot of these recommendations that that speak to what their role is, and um, advanced practice nurses, what is their role? And so I could see having a handful of different roundtable meetings with some level of coordination, all working towards very clear deliverables, and at the end of the day, improving um, and, and the, the provision and assuring better provision of medical and mental health care and assisted living, and then ultimately um, evaluating which which ones of these models or these different 43 components might be more or less important. But even me having said that, um, people don't really have to choose because you can be, of the 43, one of them is using a formal assessment tool for cognition. Another one is using an, uh, an assessment tool to understand a cause of agitation. So it's not as if you have to do just one. Often if you do one, you're going to be doing more than one. Thank you for that. Are there, in addition to that, are there any other next steps that are that we're going to see from this project? Well, AMDA is very active in this. Um, AMDA, by the way, Chris Laxton represented AMDA, and of course many AMDA members were part of the panel. Um, SEAL, the Center for Actions with Assisted Living, um, also is taking a leadership role in moving this to the next step. 
I know the association is, is very intent on moving this to the next step. So there's going to be other initiatives, I think, because the paper just came out and we're just starting to have these conversations. We perhaps haven't fully articulated them, but, I, but an example being we did start talking about a toolkit. Might there be a toolkit that we could put together? So that, that would be one example, but we're going to welcome an all-hands-on-deck um, type of effort. So any listeners today, I would certainly welcome them to get in touch with me. Um, any of the authors of the paper, if they're familiar with them, uh, Paul Katz was one of the authors, Barb Resnick. Again, these are people who have been very, very active in Jamden and, and certainly highly regarded in the field. There's going to be um, a lot of highly respected people who are going to be working to get traction on this. So if any listeners would like to be part of that movement, my goodness, we welcome it. And I will, I will, I, I thank you for that. I, I just want to, before we close out, see if um, Lindsay, Doug, if you have any closing thoughts and Cheryl, if you have any other um, closing thoughts, this has been, a, I, I'm just been really happy that we're here and having this conversation and that we, we're, we're at this point where we're thinking through these recommendations, but I, I turn it back over to you, to the you three, any closing thoughts? I'll just say, well, I'll, I'm. I'll, oh, go ahead, Cheryl. Uh, all right. I'll start because I don't want to be the last voice. So I'll just, um, <laughs> I think I, I would just like to kind of summarize it. When we looked at all 43 of these, we said, you know, they kind of, not only are they their own important recommendations, but they basically say four, four different things. Um, one is, which has already been intimated clearly, is that they speak to assisted living. They speak to person-centered advanced care planning, um, people being involved, direct care workers being involved in care plan meetings, all of those types of things. It really very clearly said to this is what assisted living has espoused right from the beginning, and we still feel those things are important. A lot of the recommendations that were endorsed had to do with dementia care, and, you know, assisted living is the primary residential provider for dementia care. So um, that's important to point out. Um, the fact that, that the recommendations are really feasible across this broad scath of what assisted living is is important to point out. Um, and then also, my final point here is, as Lindsay said, you know, many of them do um, implicate workforce needs and what we need to do for just having an RNRLPN, for example, and then training needs. So we still have to circle back to some of the challenges we've had that are relevant even in, in nursing homes and be mindful that at the end of the day, it's all about the workforce and that's going to be part of what's driving what the really medical and mental health care is all about. Well, this is Doug. I might go next and just say, you know, I, I think this report uh, is going to live on for a long time. And I think we all need to really work on disseminating this report because we all know that assisted living has evolved and changed over time and it's going to continue to change and evolve. And I think um, this report is just going to be one of several resources that really shines a bright light on the way that we can all work together in making assisted living the best that it can be. So I think the more we can disseminate this report, the better outcomes we're going to have. I couldn't agree more. Um, I just, it is to me a roadmap for assisted living providers, uh, other stakeholders, including policymakers, to really move forward and continue to improve lives of the residents we care for and also to focus on our workforce shortages and address those. So we, 
we can actually provide this kind of care too. And I'm just grateful to Cheryl and her team and other researchers that are involved um, in assisted living and publishing such important work and really also focusing on not just the publishing of it, but how can we actually implement um, this information and help providers, residents, and everyone that's involved in assisted living. And I thank all three of you for being here with us. Thank you um, for for the work and and the the contribution that you've made. It really does. And Lizzie, I'm going to echo your word. <laughs> Feels like a roadmap. Like this is the the place where we start when we start thinking about what ALs need. We need to turn to this um, paper and really look at these recommendations. Um, you guys have started us on a great journey and I am grateful. Uh, anyone who is listening, please check out the link that will be attached to this um, podcast because we will we want you to go and look at the, the article and read it and understand it and, and think about where we go next. Uh, to our great panel, thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank, thank you. you. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.